maybe four years ago, I was like, this isn't working. This is never going to work. I'm trying so hard and nothing's happening. Um, it's never going to happen. What am I doing? I don't know what to do besides this though. So I guess the theme here is like trusting in the universe that things will work out as long as you put in energy, the energy goes somewhere. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. There's been an influx of new listeners and I am glad to welcome all of you here. In case this is only the first or the second time that you're listening to me, allow me to introduce you to the show or introduce the show to you. I used to describe the Sneaky Art Podcast as a place where I have conversations with other urban sketchers because... I define my work as urban sketching. I draw in public places and I draw while observing my urban environment. But that's not the only kind of artist that influences me. And those are not the only artists that I like speaking to. Over time, as I've recorded more episodes and I've had more opportunities to think more deeply about my work and the works of interesting other people... I've come to realize that I just like to speak with interesting artists who pursue art in interesting ways. So really, this is just a show featuring people that I find interesting, and hopefully so do you. It's a great honor that you would give me so much of your time and attention, and I'm glad to be able to speak with you today. Thank you also to the incredible people who support this show. The Sneaky Art Podcast is an independent venture, which means nobody asked me to do it and no one really tells me how to go about doing things. It's all just me. All the initiative is mine, all the effort is mine, and it is up to listeners such as yourself to choose to reward my efforts if you like this show and to help keep it running. You can do so by one of two ways. If you like this episode, buy me a coffee. If you've liked several episodes, maybe it's time you become a Sneaky Art Insider. Sneaky Art Insiders get access to lots of wonderful bonus content, giveaways and rewards from me. They also get behind-the-scenes access to how I do my work and what I'm planning to do next on the show in the form of a special Sunday edition of my email newsletter, The Sneaky Art Post. If either of these two options make you curious... Click the link in the show notes for more information. And now to today's conversation. I'm speaking with Eleanor Doughty, a Seattle-based artist whose work I've enjoyed for a very long time. Eleanor is an independent illustrator and artist whose work includes murals, large canvases, prints, Kickstarter campaigns, and now there is also a book. How does the independent artist life work? What are the choices and decisions that she must make? Are there guidelines? Is there a set of best practices? I had many questions and I was curious about many, many things. But most of all, I was curious about how Eleanor decides to do the work that she does. You see, being an independent artist above all else is about this. Having lots of things you enjoy doing and finding a way to make people pay you for it. 
your path is decided by your curiosities, your interests, your skills, and your curiosities. Yes, I said it twice because curiosity is about twice as important as everything else. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Hello, Eleanor, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I am super excited to speak with you today. Hey, Nishant. I am really excited to be here. You've just spent uh, a few weeks of terrible Pacific Northwest weather in beautiful Mexico. So uh, I want to start with, like, there's so much I want to ask you about. Like, you're an illustrator, you're an artist, you're an urban sketcher. But the urban sketching part, even though it's so crucial to a lot of the work you do, I feel like it's just a foundation because the kind of things you do with it, the kind of things you do with your art are so diverse. And this conversation is going to go in a hundred different directions. So it's not just urban sketching. And I don't want to stick to just that simple, uh, single singular topic. Uh, you just came back from Mexico. You spent a lot of time there and you did a lot of sketches and you did a lot of other things. So tell me a little bit about this trip. Yes, it was a strategic decision to uh, miss a month of Seattle gloom. So we, I went with my partner, Victor. We left like late January and got back late February. And um, a bunch of friends came and visited us as well. We got like a big Airbnb. So a few people were crashing at a time. I've never taken a trip quite like that before where I was only in one city for so long. We were just in Mexico City. Um, and so people were like working from home and then going out at night. And I was mostly mostly going out and sketching during the daytime and doing a little work as well. But I before COVID, I would try to do like a longer trip once a year to... It really like helps me develop my my urban sketching voice and find new techniques. I don't like plan um, to really work on anything. I just go and see what happens because it's always really interesting and surprising what each place has to teach me. And it was a really amazing place to to explore and sketch. There's like so many museums there. It's the center is incredibly beautiful with all this modern, but like charmingly distressed architecture and like so many mature trees. I couldn't believe how many trees there were. It was just so beautiful. And like all the restaurants are nice. Uh, I worked on my Spanish a lot, filled up a sketchbook and made a bunch of paintings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like what you just said about, you know, being in one city for a really long time, because most of the traveling I do to, especially if I'm going to a foreign country, I'll tend to see more than one city, even if it's just a shorter trip. I don't think I've often spent time in just one city. What is and you spent nearly a month. So what does that do to spend uh, your time in one city for a month that you don't know? Oh, I liked it a lot. Like the older... The older I get, I feel like I want to rush less and less. And I really wanted to take my time and um, really explore the city, especially because it's enormous. 
Like you, I think three weeks was the perfect amount of time to be there and see all the museums and historical stuff that I wanted to see without rushing around every day. When I travel now, I try to do, I have like one thing I want to see and one place I want to eat at. And then the rest is just free exploring. And I feel like really lucky and privileged to have so much time to, to do that. Yeah. Do you feel like three weeks is three weeks feels like enough time that you get over that initial tourist phase and you start to Mm -hmm. really get comfortable in the rhythm of a place. Was there a significant difference for you in that? Like how things, you know, how the day begins and how the day ends in Mexico City versus Seattle? Oh, totally. There's definitely a lot more going out and eating and hanging out outside I do enjoy that feeling of like having every day be interesting and different instead of, obviously you can't do that every day in the city you live in. Um, You just be exhausted. And it's kind of nice to come back to that routine. One thing I really like about staying in a city for that long is that you get a good mental map and you stop needing to look at your phone all the time. You can just go and it's, you feel like you start to understand it. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And coming back from there now, it almost feels like you're giving up something because you picked up all of this trivia about the part of the city that you lived in and what the street corners are like and when to do what. And now it's just to be discarded because you're back to your usual system. Yeah, I've been meaning to write like a trip report. Sometimes and like contribute my knowledge to the the subreddit or whatever. Um, and I feel like if actually we are all talking about going back next year, because it was a really nice place to spend some time outside of the Pacific Northwest winter. So I feel like it'll, it'll come back someday. <laughs> you mentioned that before COVID uh, you you'd like to take you used to take one long trip per year and largely it was unplanned and that this it fed your creativity and your sketching and your art can you can you describe this i've looked at your website and there are some fascinating trips i especially was captivated by japan because that's a place that i haven't visited and i've really as an artist and as a, a lover of all sorts of ideas that I read about uh, Japanese perfectionism and art. I'm very fascinated by the country. So this question is not specifically about Japan, but I'm curious to know how these trips and how traveling feeds your creativity. Oh yeah, I could definitely talk a lot about Japan. Um, So maybe we'll do that later. Yeah, let's do that. So it feeds my creativity just by giving myself so much time to just think about sketching, um, just doing that every day, like for a lot of the day, you definitely make some some breakthroughs, but sometimes it's also, it gets kind of monotonous and I'm like, why am I doing this? What do I need to show here? Um, it def- I've definitely like burned out on trips and it's pretty rough because I can always depend on sketching as being something that makes me happy and something that helps me process um, 
whatever I'm thinking about. So that's really important. So obviously just doing it a lot. Also, I really like going to art supply stores where I'm visiting and then buying random, like whatever's in the clearance bin there. And sometimes it's usually like weird markers and using those tools is helps me have like these breakthroughs of using new materials in new ways. And that's what I meant by not planning like what happens. I don't go with a mindset of like, I'm going to work on marker drawing. It's just like something clicks at some point and it's almost always in the like last two days of the trip. I was like, Oh, that's, that's what I'm doing here. I wish I did this before, but it happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's this sort of uh, attitude of almost surrendering to, to what's going to happen to like fate in a sense, but you don't, uh, you don't assume control of all these things that this is what I'm going to use these. This is the, maybe the color palette I'm going to employ. And this is what the final product when I come back from this vacation is going to look like. And there's a bit of liberation here, not having to plan it, but it also like, it occurs to me that it also needs a lot of courage to not plan, not plan it and to leave it to, you know, to, to sort of have faith that you will find something that will be good and it'll work. Yes, that is scary for sure. I feel like that's how I approach a lot of my art practice is like, I trust that this is going to work, even though right now it seems like it's not working. Somehow it always works out. So I was, I did have that fear in Mexico that it wasn't going to happen. And honestly, like I didn't have the kind of breakthrough that I had in the past with other trips, but I still drew a lot and I'm happy with a lot of work I did. And maybe it'll reveal itself later what that thing was. Also, it was really hard to find um, art supply stores in Mexico. It's very surprising. That's that's so interesting because uh, I am very usually I'm very control obsessed. Like I need to, I I need to know what I'm doing. I need to know how I'm doing it. But there are these aspects of my life in which I specifically or very consciously give up control. But I, I think it's good for me to do that. I've found that I've liked the results. So travel, for example, I've learned over time to not have very detailed travel plans because sometimes you, you know, you have to leave room for discovery. And the process of becoming an artist sort of also reinforced this idea for me that, you know, sometimes it's good to not not be too deterministic, to just let things happen and then see as they go and to stay in the flow of those things. Like I'm thinking about how, you know, you work as a freelance illustrator and a lot of life, like a lot of working life is like that. Like you can't really have a lot of very fixed ideas of exactly what you're going to do because things occur to you and things pop up in your life or circumstances appear that allow you to do a certain thing suddenly. And you have to sort of be open to that possibility. Is this something you enjoy naturally or is it something you've learned to appreciate? I think I've definitely learned to appreciate it more. Um, I've been full-time freelancing for almost about five years now. And even before doing it full-time, I was doing it part-time between other 
regular jobs. And it is really terrifying because the feast and the famine, whole that whole concept is really, really real. Like you will get so much, so many inquiries in a month and then the next month there'll be nothing. And you just really have to trust that there will be more. There's abundance in the world. Sometimes I'm still like, well, I guess that was it. That was my career and no one, like everyone's just moved on. Uh, And then there will be a deluge of emails in my inbox one day. It's so weird how that happens. I'm I'm glad to hear it's not just me because I think this is exactly how it's been for me already this year. Like I feel like I have, I, uh, there was a, a, like a flood of inquiries in early January and I was super busy with lots of lots of things and they are sort of, I'm, I'm finishing them up now, but there haven't been more, there hasn't been more stuff coming in at that same rate. And a part of me is worried and a part of me has learned that you just can't predict these things. It could suddenly happen. And these are just forces outside your control. Um, Yes. (laughs) Mysterious forces. Yeah. And this is, I feel like this is just the job description in being a freelance artist of any kind. So why would anyone choose to do that? (laughs) Um. I don't think it's for everyone. That's for sure. Um, I like it because I really care about it. And it's something I really want to do. I'm reflecting like the last few weeks, working till 8 or 9 p.m. in my studio most days that I would never do this for anyone else that I can think of. Maybe maybe I could be wrong um, in a few years. I don't know. But I just don't have the energy to to commit myself to like someone else's dream or someone else's business idea. And that was the problem I had working uh, as an employee. It was like, I'll, I'll do the job. I'll do what you asked me to, but I'm not going to like put my whole self into this. So if you are excited about things, um, I think it's like, just super worthwhile to do. We're only alive one time. Um, If you feel like you have something you want to do this badly, then it's really the only thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that answer because uh, firstly, I relate to it. I relate very much to this idea that I couldn't give my 150% to someone else's project. And the only things that motivate me to give, to go above and beyond are ideas of my own. And uh, that brings me to the second part of this. It feels almost essential that and a freelance illustrator then be a person who has a lot of different kinds of ideas that want to be realized. And they're almost looking for spaces where they can do it. Like, can I do it as part of this commission? Can I express this? thing that is inside me as part of this travel trip or as part of this Kickstarter. And uh, I've, I've been thinking about that because I'm looking at the the diverse kinds of projects you've done. Like you've done murals and you've done this giant canvas for a store. And there are the digital illustrations. There's the printmaking. These are self-motivated projects, are they not? The stuff you just talked about was client-based um, 
a lot of those were things I sent in a, like, I responded to a RFP request for proposals. A lot of the time, like my friends send them to me for the murals. Um, So yeah, I like that you said finding, like finding a space for these ideas in the world, because I feel like this is what's happened to me in the last few years is that my landscape work and my urban sketching work has found this, has started to find clients who want that for their, their business. Um, the, the giant canvas for the store, I believe you're referring to as a, a commission for a grocery store in the Seattle area. They wanted like a large 10 by 12 foot piece of art and I believe they wanted a, a landscape-based piece. And I really like this. I mean, I think it's like my niche because everyone in the world has like li- multiple places that they're very connected to. And we all have that in common. And I want to be the person that like reflects that back to them so they can feel like they like Every place is really interesting. I think there's beauty everywhere. And I really want to help people see that and appreciate that. So they start drawing it too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's such a lovely thought. And I often think about these kind of public facing uh, art installations, like whether it's, a, you know, a, a painting on a canvas is very easily seen as art, but murals and sculptures and things that that just engage with public life are so interesting to me. So I really like uh, that you did this this beautiful mural. Like it, it seemed like such a lot of work and applying for it and wanting to do it. Where does like uh, I, I feel like that's that's the self motivated part that I'm speaking about. Even when it's client work, to want to to want to spend a significant chunk of your year or a few of the next few weeks in specifically this project, like whether you're, the choice of whether you want to mess around with paints by the side of the street, or if you want to work in a, in, on a massive canvas and you've got this ladder inside a studio. Oh, yes. Um, well, just economically, it's, it's better to do one project for a few weeks than bouncing around little projects all the time. But I like to have a mix of both, ideally. Sometimes I don't get a choice and just like the the time that is required to invest into a large piece like that makes it feel really worthwhile and you get the time to really research the place. I've done a bunch of digital murals for Hilton hotels. Uh, I've done like maybe 10 at this point. And those are really cool projects. They're kind of infuriating because I just have to look, I have to like go on Google Earth and like zoom around, look at things most amazing tool in the world. I think Google Maps, Google Earth and Google Maps are like, I genuinely think pinnacle of human achievement. It's amazing. I can just go to Indiana and look at a building from the sky and then look at it from all these different angles. I couldn't do my job without it. Yeah, but I guess it's infuriating because I really want to be in those places and experience them and feel them. But most of the time I have to just look on Google images and try to try to feel what it's like there. Um, but still very fun. 
So actually, let's let's talk about the Street View images because uh, I'm fascinated by this Kickstarter project you did a few years ago. So we're going back a little bit in time and you did this project, uh, I think it was called Globe Hopper or maybe you were calling yourself Globe Hopper at that time. Uh, you were doing a bunch of Street View drawings and then you designed this Kickstarter around uh, funding a trip to Europe. So tell me a little bit about the Street View drawings. How did you start? How did you get into it? What was the curiosity, and uh, how did how did Google Street View come into it? Oh man, I'm so happy you asked me about that. Google Street View was something I discovered in college. So this Kickstarter you're referring to was um, my senior project for my last year of art school at. Virginia Commonwealth University, 2013. Uh, a few years before that, I studied abroad in Austria and Germany, doing one was a German language program and one was a independent research project. I got a grant to do and study bookmaking in Germany. Uh, that was all self-directed. It was my first time out of uh, North America and it blew my mind and I realized I really love drawing outside and I love drawing buildings. And that was always a part of my practice since like I went to art school at least because they were like, you need to draw from life all the time if you want to be a good artist. And I was like, okay, that's fun. I love that. <laughs> I love drawing. I'll do that. Um, but then going to to Europe that time was really eye-opening and it, I really started to understand that drawing helped me process the world around me and really by drawing these buildings that were so unfamiliar to me, I was like channeling my appreciation for them by observing them and then putting that line onto paper when I went back to Richmond, where I was living, there's still really interesting buildings in Richmond, but I was just feeling like I wanted to keep traveling and doing what I was doing all summer. It was so, so expansive for me to do that. I was also, um, the last three weeks in Germany, I was totally by myself, which was also very uh, interesting and developed a lot developed a lot of stuff at that point. So I found that Google Street View was a way to keep traveling while staying in my house and doing my school and not spending money. That was really fun. Um, I also started taking a printmaking class in the printmaking department. And that was really important to me because that was the first class I had taken I was in a communication arts program, which was, I was focusing on like illustration. So very commercial work, but the printmaking class was the first time someone had been like, what do you, what do you want to make? They gave us prompts. That was, I remember the prompt was invasive species and everyone had to make a six layer screen print on that theme. So you could do anything as long as it related to that theme so I made this, I took this street view drawing I did in Japan and like put these fox creatures in the city. And he was like, are they the invasive species or are humans the invasive species? <gasps> Makes you think it's deep. 
Um, but I was like, whoa, this is like, if I had a choice, this is what I would want to do. It's really satisfying. So uh, that was, I think, junior year. And senior year, I was um, in my senior studio, kind of a capstone class. And along with making a portfolio, my teacher, Sterling Hundley, who's a very amazing illustrator and teacher, um, he was really into like this new thing called crowdfunding. And he was really excited about the democratization of funding projects. And he was like, you don't need a an agent or anyone, you can just go get the money yourself directly. There's no gatekeepers. We were all like, whoa, that's so cool. So it was kind of like, whatever you want to do, just make the Kickstarter project, no limits. Um, and I was like, well, if I could do anything, this is what I would want to do is like go to Europe and do more drawing and see the world and travel um, and what better way to like explain that idea than to travel the world and street view and draw what I see there to kind of show people what I would want to do or like what that would look like. And as far as I know, I think I'm the only person who actually launched the Kickstarter project. Launching it wasn't a requirement for the class. You just had to make something. I was kind of like, what? you guys, why didn't you do it? Like, this is so cool. So 2013, this was, I graduated and then I launched the project. The rewards were all like a book of work that I've done for this project. I did a bunch of silkscreen prints cause I was um, still taking printmaking classes and was like working in the printmaking lab at that point. So I had a lot of freedom to just use the equipment, which was amazing. Best part of art school is just using all the stuff. Um, I also did at a higher level, people could request a location and then I would do a print of that location and include it in the whole body of work. By the way, this is all online still. You can check it out. But okay, so I did all that work and then started feeling extremely panicky because it wasn't really, there was like a big burst at the beginning and then a little trickle of backers. I think my goal, I don't remember what the goal was. It was like four or $5,000. Yeah, I think you had a stretch goal of five and a half. Yeah, pretty, not a crazy amount of money for Kickstarter. Kind of a crazy amount of money to ask people to fund my European uh, excursion, but whatever. <laughs> I realized that I do not like asking my friends and family to fund my dreams and got a lot of anxiety around posting this a lot on my Facebook. I don't even think I had Instagram at that time. But then an amazing thing happened, which was Kickstarter featured the project on their front page. And I got most of the way there. I, I think I like cried when I saw that. I was so happy. Not just because it got more attention, but because the Kickstarter people gave it like that validation of featuring it. And I had no idea they were gonna do that. So thanks Kickstarter. 
it got funded. Um, so I traveled in Europe for two and a half months with my partner at the time, who's also an artist. And we saw a lot of amazing cities, drew a lot. Um, I kept this very detailed blog the whole time for the Kickstarter backers so they could see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting because uh, like I really resonate with what you said about the anxiety of, uh, you know, asking or uh, just raising money from uh, your immediate circle. Like I, I feel that like I feel a, like a little cringy doing that myself. And so uh, I'm curious, how did you like, how did you visualize this? You don't have an Instagram at this point. So you don't have this online audience that, you know, you can count on as fans. So what, uh, what were some of your thoughts? Like, how did you, how did you initially try to reach out to people or to reach, you know, to get news out about your Kickstarter? Yeah, times have really changed since 2013. No Instagram, no mailing list. It was a lot. I was more active on Facebook. So I had Facebook and I had a few thousand followers on Tumblr, but people don't really spend money on Tumblr. So I don't think I got much help from that. A lot of it was just people on Kickstarter that just hang out and like to back projects, apparently. Because you can see where your traffic comes from. And I remember about half of it came from random people on Kickstarter. And some of those people still follow me and like comment on my stuff. And I remember them. They were there back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. You built an like, usually people would say that you should take your audience to Kickstarter, but you also built an audience on Kickstarter and then brought them to the rest of your work. <laughs> yeah, I've always been surprised where how people find me because it's a lot of people have found me just on Etsy where I sell prints and stuff. There's just, you just never know who you're going to reach by posting in unexpected places. So you think like Instagram is quite saturated anyway. Yeah. And I like, I was quite surprised to see that you still post on Tumblr because I had assumed Tumblr had died five years ago. What What's the deal? Is Tumblr still alive? Oh my God, I love Tumblr. It's so funny. It's like there's the ads. Apparently they can't really sell ads. So you just get like very strange things. It's nice to not be targeted at all. Um, I... I mean, I like scrolling on it. I never left. Um, I don't really know why people left, to be honest, because nothing really better has come along. So, yeah, I still post occasionally and get a surprising amount of just, like, interaction with it. It's not quite the same as Instagram. Um, You can actually – people tag posts more than when they reblog it more than comment on it. So it's more like a personal reflection rather than something you're sharing with the person directly and whoever else is looking at this. But you can like scroll through the tags now and see what people have done. And sometimes it's like, oh, it looks like this is my home. I I want to go back to Seattle. Also, there's no clout. You can't see how many followers anyone has. 
And that's actually really nice. There's no influencers. It's just really simple. And I have no expectation of like anything coming out of it. I just have been doing it for like 11 years at this point. And I was actually scrolling back through my archive yesterday. I started posting there when I was still in college, like 2011. And you can see the whole, the whole journey. <laughs> I don't know if you got that far back. I, I, I went pretty far back. I don't think I went till 2011, but I went pretty far back. Uh, and I'm, I'm fascinated by exactly these things. Like it's these, like, it's not exactly a social network, but it's a sharing network of a kind. There's this thing that I think about, like, I wonder why people behave the way they do on Instagram and the way they do on uh, with listening to this, suppose someone's listening to this podcast, for example. So you have such different behavior, right? Like if I'm on Instagram, I know that I should be more conscientious about artists and things like that. But if I'm on Instagram, I'm also scrolling. I'm just zooming, you know, zipping past all these posts by these fantastic artists. And I give them like, a, a, a you know, a quarter of a second and I'll just hit the like button and then I'll go, like I'll hit the heart button and I'll keep scrolling. But that's not what I want to do. It's, and I like, I, I try to think about how different platforms sort of make us behave in a certain way. So what I liked about what you just described about Tumblr is that because you can't be an influencer and because there's no way to acquire that kind of clout, it does not incentivize that kind of behavior. You get only, let's say, uh, genuine posters. Like you don't get people posting in order to build a following. Is that, is that, would that be correct? Yeah, it's such a weird situation because, I mean, generally people are like, what, your Tumblr is still alive? So like, what do you get out of posting at a place like this where you can't, there's nothing to get really? It's very pure. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, you mentioned when we were just talking about starting the Kickstarter, you mentioned that nobody else in your class actually launched the Kickstarter and you did. Uh, why, why do you think that was the case? That's such an interesting situation. I wish I knew. Well, I don't want to like generalize my class and I don't, I don't know what people's personal situations were. Um, but like... I was very ambitious, we can say. There are, of course, other some other people who are ambitious, but I feel like it was also kind of beaten into us that they said, like, one person in this room will make it, and the rest of you will not be full-time illustrators, which was not true, by the way. More than one person in my classes are definitely making it as, as artists now in different ways, in different capacities. But, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't launch it. Like there's nothing to lose. It's free. I, I use that same, I look, I have those same questions about why more people don't share their art online. Like I know so many people who are pretty good with drawing and painting, but they don't share it. And yeah, Instagram is free. It doesn't hurt to do it. But I feel like it has something to do with just opening up to the possibility of failing at it or failing at whatever you think you're supposed to achieve with it. You know, a Kickstarter should be overfunded by so many times. Otherwise, you failed that kind of thinking. 
Yeah, that's there's a lot there to respond to. I think like definitely you Instagram can hurt some people emotionally, so definitely not a requirement to to post there if that's not your bag. Also, I want to say one person did launch the Kickstarter, but I'm not sure if it was funded. It was like a comic project, I remember. Um, yeah, def- but definitely the root of what you're saying, I think, is a lot of fear. F- fear of, yeah, not being a runaway success, even for some people, is kind of unthinkable. Right. Like we sort of like, I, I now you mentioned that someone said, or was it a professor or someone said that one of you is going to be successful. And that also sort of reinforces that point, right? Like you have to be amazing in order for this to work for you. Otherwise, there's just no point to, to doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they were also kind of living in a past era of illustration, like pre-internet pre-crowdfunding social media because there's so many ways to succeed nowadays especially before if you were like bringing your portfolio like your physical portfolio to New York City taking a cab to Rolling Stone magazine and then the New York Times like who can probably there's not that much room in that world for one thing for that many people um yeah, so I think they were wrong. And there's also, yeah, a lot of ways to be successful, even if it's just selling a few prints or even just getting a an audience on Instagram to respond to your work and look, look at your work, spend, well, whatever, what does that mean? Like, I have so many people that follow me and they spend less than one second looking at my work before scrolling on. Yeah, I often think about that. And uh, this, it makes me think about how people are not necessarily, you know, this is not necessarily how they want to treat your work. It's just, it's a factor of where they are seeing your work and what these different platforms and these different apps, you know, the space that they occupy in our lives. So if, as I'm an artist, Instagram means something completely different to me than what it does to someone who's not an artist. So someone that I see as a potential follower of my work, for them, Instagram occupies a completely different part of their daily life. And I sometimes think that it's my job, therefore, to to reach them in a place where they do have more than half a second to give me. And Instagram is evidently not that spot. Anyway, um, I wanted to, uh, so you you had a successful first Kickstarter run. And I'm curious to know, after this, what, what were some ideas you took away from the success of it? Like, there's, of course, the, the reward that you were able to do this trip. But uh, as an illustrator, as an artist, what did it give you to have this successful Kickstarter run? Well, I also want to say that after I graduated from this illustration program, I did not want to do it as my job. Um, When I had like little commissions, I had really bad anxiety about doing it and I did not enjoy the process at all and realized that that was like doing 
doing it for money is not the same as doing it for myself. And it just wasn't worth it to struggle that much um, for like the famously low um, pay of doing it. So I decided I wanted to be a window display designer or something like that, like a immersive sculpture experience maker. Um, so that was my, my desire. I made a separate portfolio for that after school. But after I got back from the Europe trip, I started applying to jobs and not getting jobs, living at home with my supportive family. I became a ceramic teacher. I was a pottery instructor, um, helped like, I did like a summer camp, pottery summer camp and worked at this pottery studio part-time. I loved making pottery. I wish I still had had that in my life. So definitely wanting to do like creative things and getting a little traction in the, the freelance illustration world because I still thought it was cool to, to do stuff like that. It was still really hard for me to work for money. It just changes everything about, I mean, you know, you know, you're an artist and someone's asking you to do something it just goes to this different part of your brain and then you, it just doesn't, doesn't work the same way. Yeah. I, I, uh, recently, uh, actually that episode is going to come out later this week. I spoke to a guest and we were talking about how, when I do an illustration for someone and most of the times those illustrations are not on location. So I'm working out of a picture. And for me, that's already, like a second level, like a lower level of work. Like I feel like my best work comes out on location. So I told him that when I do illustrations for someone else, I have to convince myself, psych myself into thinking that I'm not doing it for them and that I don't even care about them. And, you know, I have to have this narrative in my mind to sort of eliminate the person from the pit, from the scene. Because if I'm thinking about them, I am not doing the thing that they wanted me to do. Like they, it's sort of in their best interests if I don't think about them at all. <laughs> but uh, like I, I was saying that commissions feel like I am sort of imitating who I am. Like I'm cosplaying as myself. I'm not really being me. And it's this strange thing because it's so cool to get the, the fact that someone wants you to do work for them and they're going to have your art in their home that's ridiculous but at the same time it's this strange urge of really not wanting to not wanting to not wanting to do it like just i think is is a part of it just being this you know ambitious about your own plans or is it is there just something about being an artist and 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 working for other people and that 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 conflict is it is it something that everyone faced do you do you know about this because it feels like all the great works that we see of art and sculpture they were all commissioned and the artist was asked to make this for someone really really rich which is why it's lasted all these years yeah that's a great question i wonder i wonder if the old great folks um felt the same way but I'm also, what comes to mind is um, Vincent van Gogh and he, all of his works that have like stuck around. I think he sold like two paintings while he was alive. I think to close family, that too. 
Oh yeah, it's like a pity, a pity sale. I love his story. I love, I love him as an artist, and I feel like maybe something that we respond to so strongly is that he was really painting what he loved to paint, and I don't think he was trying to be commercially successful. He just loved going out in the fields and painting simple stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, there's this such a, such a strange dichotomy between being ambitious and then not wanting commissions. But we'll get into it from another angle because I I sort of want to know how you arrived at this realization that you don't uh, want to do the traditional job of an illustrator once you were out of university by going back further in time to why and how, you know, the circumstances around which you decided that you want to be an artist. What was the role that art and creative expression of any kind, what was the role that it played in your life before university? And how did you arrive at this decision that you want to be an artist? I don't think there was ever a decision, actually. Uh, My earliest drawing memories were copying like cartoon characters from the computer games I was playing. It's like pausing the game and then copying and, uh, and watching, also watching a lot of Studio Ghibli films as a child. We had a family friend um, who's Japanese that introduced us, like gave us some VHS tapes. And I watched Kiki's Delivery Service like 300 times in Totoro. And I want to believe that that was like, the seed that was planted, just being appreciative of art and visual storytelling. And the films are so beautiful. Uh, Then I got really into shows like Pokemon and Digimon and made up characters, my friends that I drew. I was the drawing person in the group, as a lot of drawing people could relate to. Um, I also, this is like early, early internet, like dial up internet. I would spend a lot of time going on these Japanese websites and looking at Digimon fan art that people posted online. And there's some really amazing stuff, if I recall correctly. And so I guess like posting art on the internet has always been with me since I was like in elementary school, having that and like sharing it and coming across other people's work and getting inspired by it. Um, And in high school, I decided I just wanted to go to art school. I didn't really know or care what came after that, but I knew I really wanted to do that. My parents said, "Um, you can do art, but you have to go to a liberal arts school that has other stuff, which was this fair point. Yeah, what's uh, for someone who has no idea, what's the distinction? Oh, um, well, there's art schools like in the US, there's like Ringling, um, Pratt in Brooklyn, you know, famous art schools, Rhode Island School of Design. They just focus on art. And they're also like, at the time, it was like already $50,000 a year. It's probably more now. So you're, spending a boatload of money to 
go to art school, which is great. You get amazing connections, amazing resources at those schools. Um, but what happens after that? So I went to a, I ended up going to Virginia Commonwealth University, which is a state school. It has a really good art program. Uh, it's a huge school. It's like 30,000 people and it has like a media school. It has, you know, science, math, nursing, anything you could want to study, you can study there. Right. So it was they, they, your parents quite sensibly wanted you to hedge your bets and keep open the idea of finding something else that's, that interests you. Yeah, a fallback. And also, I think it was about having other subjects that could enrich, enrich my art school education. So they wanted me to do like a, they wanted me to go to like business school. And then when I told my advisor that they're like, oh, you mean advertising school? And I was like, okay, uh, not really the same, but so I did a minor in advertising. So that was like my money fallback idea. Um, but I'm glad I didn't get into that because I think it seems soul crushing. <laughs> uh, how, how do you feel about, how do you feel about this decision in retrospect, going to a liberal arts college instead of art school? Uh, I think it was a great decision. Um, it was a lot cheaper. I also got a scholarship. So not having student debt has really, I think, affected my trajectory. And I really appreciate that. Um, got to meet people who weren't artists as well. And because the art school itself wasn't so saturated with like diehard art people, there was a lot of room to really get opportunities like I was talking to my my friend Emily we were talking about this study abroad grant I mentioned earlier it was like a few thousand dollars you propose a project and then so she and I both got it and she said when she applied for it the year after I did it she was the only one who applied for it so they were like you have to like change some things with this application but we're going to give it to you because no one else applied Oh my gosh, which is amazing. It's like free money. You just have to get it. I don't know. It was probably like also a failure on the school's part for not advertising it or something. We were kind of, it was kind of disorganized, I would say, in our department. So you mentioned entering university with this just this vague notion that you wanted to be an artist and not having this, you know, real picture of what that means. Like, what does that mean day to day, week to week? So tell me about the realization. Like, when did this, you know, I often think about this with respect to all the kinds of trajectories that people have. Sometimes we look at very successful people and we see what they're doing right now. And we think that their path from you know, early childhood was just a straight line to become this person that they are today. And the more I speak to fellow artists in the urban sketching community, I've come to understand that that's not what happens. Like people go in all kinds of directions and the, the path that they've taken is anything but a straight line. And a lot of that starts with 
early ideas and then there's a there's a switch there's a flipping point a turning point where you understand that things are not the way that you thought they were and you find yourself doing something else you're motivated by other interests so tell me a little bit about this like wanting to be an artist and then sort of getting a better idea of what it means to be an illustrator and deciding that you don't you might not want it yeah at some point i well yeah, I always wanted to do creative things. That was pretty much all I was interested in, whether it was photography or sculpture or installations. So that was never a question for me. I was really inspired by the installations at anthropology stores, which is, sounds really basic, but they were amazing. And that's all I wanted to do was like what I want my life to be is sitting in like a studio, listening to podcasts, cutting 3000 pieces of paper out and tying them to little strings and getting a steady paycheck. That's important. That was important. Not anymore. Yeah. That sounded good. And then I would also be able to still draw for fun. Cause I still just love sketching, honestly, doing these location sketches so no matter what I was doing, I was always still keeping a sketchbook and recording my life, drawing what was around me. I always saw it as like a a journal or a record of everything. And those are really important to me. My whole sketchbook collection from starting from end of high school or really college is where it started being more of a journal. I was really inspired by some prolific sketchbook artists of the day. And I wanted, just wanted to make work that looked like that. That felt really personal. Um, so from the, the window display dream, I ended up moving to New York, getting a job as a visual merchandiser, which is what was kind of adjacent to what I actually wanted to do. So it ended up being a lot of how do you place products in the store so people buy them? Uh, and a little bit of make the store pretty, but mostly we need to sell stuff. So <laughs> we need you to do that. And I did not like that. Not what I really signed up for, but you got to start somewhere. Uh, got let go from that job because they were financially insolvent. Somehow still in business though, weirdly. Then I became a bike delivery person for Postmates and that was super fun because I got to ride my bike and see all sorts of parts of the city and get exercise. And that was really cool because they, you get like a job on your phone. It's like, go to five guys, get some burgers and fries, and then go to this apartment building 30 blocks away. And then you do that and then you're done. Simple. So simple. You don't have to think. You just have to, to go and be outside. And I also kept a sketchbook of that job where I drew all the food I delivered. Um, a lot of it was just from imagination because I wasn't like leaving the box open to get cold and stuff. But like while I was waiting or while I was on the train that evening, I would draw all the food I delivered. So just this keeping... is 
This is, by the way, an excellent Studio Ghibli movie right there. A delivery person who is imagining the food that they're about to deliver and making drawings of it. I can totally see that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that. It would be such a great story. This can be Kiki's Delivery Service Part Two. Yes. <laughs> oh, that is such a good movie. So flattering. I, I know. You know, uh, I am ashamed to admit that I came to. Uh, Studio Ghibli work very late in life and only last year I saw Kiki's Delivery Service and that movie is just like I love the fact that the story is utterly predictable but I don't like that's not the hook like it's not that I can't tell what's going to happen next uh, or that that's that's not the reason why I'm watching I'm watching just because it's so beautiful it's just little little bits of beauty all over the place and this uh, lovely magical world where things are happening like i just loved that movie such a it was such a great day the day that i saw that <laughs> film <laughs> oh yeah yeah the day you see a jilly movie for the first time is always a great day um that also reminds me of like having a non linear path to your dreams like she wants to be she's a witch but she also finds these other jobs that um, create like her, her life, her, her reason for being in this place and enables her to meet all these interesting people. And she also has like a burnout moment, which is real. She's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's not working anymore. The magic isn't, isn't working. And I don't know why that definitely, uh, feels very relatable sometimes yeah let's uh on let's let's keep moving forward so there's the postmates and how what's the path from there to becoming an illustrator again okay well i felt like i was gonna die if i kept doing bike delivery because it's incredibly dangerous so i eventually got another display semi-display design job at west elm at a store, not at the office. And a lot of it, most of it was not designing like the installations. A lot of it was unfortunately like helping customers and picking up like pillows that someone took out 20 pillows and then threw them on the floor and left. But it was also arranging um, the floor plans and creating these spaces with the furniture and the, the plants and the wall textures. And I feel like in some ways that helped me become a better painter and illustrator by being able to think about these different ways of arranging compositions. Um, from there, I became a visual merchandising consultant for the body shop, which sells skincare products. Uh, it was very random, but that job was cool because it paid really well. I was I didn't have like hours that I was working. It was like more like once a month they would tell me we're sending you to a mall in some place in the US. And then I would go work in the mall for like a week or so, a few days uh like 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. installing the store, sleep for a few hours and then like go out in the city until I had to go to work. And because I wasn't, I didn't need to be back in the office or anything, I would like book a different hotel 
and explore and do paintings and drawings in these cities. Um, that was such a cool opportunity to do that. And I was also freelancing illustration at that time. So it was always a balance of job to freelancing and it just kind of worked out that I had less and less job and more and more freelancing until that store was bought by some other company and they never asked me to do anything else. It was the same time I moved to Seattle as well. And I never, I applied for jobs here, but never got hired and ended up just never working for a company since then <laughs> and doing art full time. So the universe just let me have this one. Right. Right. Uh, the, the freelance jobs, like uh, the illustration jobs, was it, was it something that came your way? How like this transitioning from it being a thing that you also do to it being the thing that you, the, or the only thing that you do, what was like, what was that process for you? Did you have, did you, were you plagued by, you know, self doubt at any point? Like, I feel like there's so much, uh, like, again, this notion of trajectories that we're supposed to follow. So being somebody who has not been doing this sort of thing since she graduated from university and then to to sort of bring it back into your life in a big way, was there uh, uh, were there any doubts and hesitations that you had to overcome? Did you have ideas that you needed to defeat about what, like, what it means to be an artist? Mm -hmm. um, part of what made it possible was having a, an Etsy store. I started around the same time I started Globehopper. Um, that was because I had a friend who was pestering me to start one because she wanted to buy prints. And I was like, well, it seems like a good idea. And still, still doing that today. So that's also been increasing throughout the years as like just diversifying income streams I did have to take one business art business class in college, which was really nice that they made us do that. And that's something they talked about is the 80, 20 rule. If you don't do anything about it, 80% of your income will come from 20% of your clients. Or maybe it's 80% of your income comes from one client and 20% comes from everyone else. I, I think the 80, 20 rule is, superb because it can be interpreted in like a million ways. I've heard like you just told me two interpretations of the 80-20 rule and both of them kind of sort of sound like they could work. <laughs> but uh, there's <laughs> another one true. that I put. So for example, there's an 80-20 rule or a 20-80 rule that I apply to being a podcaster that uh, ideally I should be speaking for 20% of the time <laughs> and the guest for the 80 and that would make it a good you know uh keep the focus on the on the speaker and it would be a good practice but uh the 80 20 principle i think is that 80 percent of your success is going to come from 20 percent of your work so it's like a few things you do are going to be the big movers that enable you to do the other things that you want to do yeah that feels really true I like that you're also applying it to your podcast. I totally see that now. <laughs> uh, let's see. I lost the train though. What were what were we speaking uh, of? I so I, I'm curious about I'm curious about this 
this decision to become a freelance illustrator what were the things that came easily to you and what were the things that were difficult for you that you had to sort of uh, that you had to force you know like very consciously imbibe as a practice or as an attitude yes the i guess what was hard what was what's easy is working a lot for me like following leads following up with people sometimes hunting down um gigs i used to look on craigslist for for stuff i've gotten a bit of work from craigslist so being proactive um being responsible with communication with people sometimes a lot of the time if you send like double emails someone's not responding you actually get a lot of stuff that way by following up because some people need that and i'll be that person to double email sometimes um what was hard for me it was not being able to control when i get to reap the rewards of all of this work that i'm doing there is definitely i can think of a few times in the last mm, maybe 4 years ago i was like this isn't working this is never going to work i'm trying so hard and nothing's happening um it's never going to happen what am i doing i don't know what to do besides this though so i guess the theme here is like trusting in the universe that things will work out as long as you put in energy the energy goes somewhere right yeah that's that's so true and i feel like we only don't have the answers because we're not good enough and that if only we were good enough or successful enough we would have all of these answers but it appears to me that these answers these questions are just going to always stay there's always going to be a lot of uncertainty and there's going to be all these uh, delayed rewards that you can't control that you have no idea about and you're never really going to have a very concrete idea of what you're going to be do like how things are going to pan out for you in the next few years a lot of it is like short term thinking but i think you have to have a long term trust in the process or trust in the universe and just just uh, operate in the short term nonetheless um which brings me to this incredible up ending of our lives that happened a couple of years ago uh how has covid impacted the freelance work lifestyle for you was it uh, like of course i'm sure it was a shock but what uh i uh, what i'm interested in here is that you know when we are working just by ourselves there's a lot of damage we can take from something that completely changes everything but there's also a lot of opportunity to sort of pivot around it like you have great flexibility if you're just a single person doing your work so i want to know both the the bad of what it was for you what it did to your life but also how you sort of uh, adapted around it yes that was a crazy time for sure um i remember being in like april all my workshops got canceled and they were for the summer i was like why are we canceling workshops it's going to be fine by july uh funny <laughs> i was wrong 
So, but of course I had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. I definitely had it pretty good compared to a lot of people. Um, my big project was working on this graphic novel, which of course I don't, I can do by myself anytime. And that was a contract. So I felt pretty good that that was at least going to carry me through. Honestly, just having that to work on because no one was hiring for a while after COVID COVID came. Um, So I was like, well, no matter what happens, I have this book that is a huge project. I'm so grateful that I had that to keep me. It wasn't even about the money as much as it was what am I doing here? What can I do? Everything was so scary. Um, as for, well, good things happened. We started doing this street view jam meetup on zoom where I would share my screen of like different places in the world and then people would draw them. So it was almost like being together and drawing in a different city with urban sketchers. But not as good, obviously, but also I think it took our minds off of everything for a while. And I never would have thought of doing that if it wasn't for a lockdown. Um, As for bad things, overall, it was just a really bad time for my mental health. I was coming out of a breakup with a very long-term partner a few months before. And a bunch of other stuff was extremely tumultuous. And I've never been so depressed, honestly. But like everybody, we really faced a lot of stuff we wouldn't have faced if it wasn't for COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree with you. I think, uh, firstly, we're being so optimistic when we say it was a bad time because it's not quite, I feel like I have this suspicion that it's not quite done with us. And there's going to be it's it's affected the whole world in very profound ways. So you mentioned these street view drawings on Zoom and just that little thing is such a big deal. Like I feel like uh, so much technology and so much interaction between people, I think something that would have taken maybe five or 10 years was fast forwarded into that first year of COVID. We, we need to have all of this working today. So people moved online, people started doing these Instagram live sessions and uh, Clubhouse and Twitter and all these things, uh, Twitter spaces and all of these things became big. This podcast is a child of the pandemic. Like, I don't think I would have started. Yeah, I don't think I would have started the podcast if uh, suddenly I hadn't faced this this isolation that I can't. I, I was living in Chicago and I was we just moved to Chicago with the idea that finally I would get to hang out with all the cool urban sketchers I knew. And there was going to be the seminar and I was going to be an instructor and all the plans were, of course, shuttered and I had to find a way to keep learning. So my pivot in my life was that I started to, I started this podcast as a way to start talking to people again, to get myself to have conversations with people again, because a lot of listeners listen to me, like they've only ever heard me on this podcast. So a lot of people think that Surely I'm good at conversations because I have these long conversations. But uh, what I don't share often is that this is usually the only conversation I have in the week. <laughs> like if if we end up talking for like an hour or two hours or three, 
I might not speak to another, like other than my wife, I might not speak to another external oh, yeah, person. I was going to say, what about your wife? <laughs> yeah, I, I talk to but yeah, her. Different, I talk different. to her too much. And that doesn't count. That's that's just life. Yeah. Uh, it's not new. It's not stimulating in the same way. It's It's not outside people. That's just our party of two. So that's uh, that's ongoing. But uh, if I if I have a podcast conversation with someone, I'm usually out of commission for other conversations for at least three or four days. So uh, next week is going to be interesting. I'm recording three episodes that week. It's going to be brutal on me to keep asking people how they're doing and keep sharing ideas and stuff. And uh, that's a it's, lot. Yeah, it's going to be fun. But <laughs> coming, let's come back to what we were talking about. Uh, COVID has done all this to us. Do you think now, and we're starting to sort of look outside of COVID, do you think this is a good time to be an artist, to be a freelance artist? Yes, if it's what, if it's what you want to do, I think it's a good time to do it. I mean, one thing with COVID is that everyone realized what they really wanted out of life. Um, I think there's horrible, horrible stuff that came out from COVID. Of course, we don't, I don't have to, to say all of the things that are bad from it, but I was actually hopeful in some ways that it would be the disruption that society needed to like be healthy. I don't think I was right about that, but I think on the individual level, people are more healthy and more in tune with what they want and I think doing what you want is the only thing that is worthwhile. And of course, there's so many channels to, to do that. With the, the internet, democratization, you can invent totally new ways of creating income streams, uh, make a podcast, feel like fulfilled by what you're doing. Yeah, you're you're so right. Like that, uh, it absolutely has worked out that way on the individual level. I feel there's this phenomenon that's being talked about as the Great Resignation, which is that masses of people, not just in entry level positions, but even in middle management, are quitting their jobs because they've just reevaluated what their life is about, and they've had to confront mortality in a way that you know people in their twenties and thirties usually don't have to in such a, at such a scale and it's making them think about what they want to do with their life and people are moving in all kinds of different directions suddenly and I for one hope that this will help us help us as a collective the fact that at an individual level more and more people are thinking about such things yes totally agree Hi, let's take a short break here. There are a couple of things I want to share with you. To begin, this week I shared the postscript segment of my episode with Sandy Hester with my newsletter audience. The Sneaky Art Post is the best way to stay in touch with this podcast and with the rest of my work. It is also a great way for me to send you stuff, such as the postscript segments of these conversations. Postscripts are segments recorded after the main conversation is over. I like to think of each postscript as nothing more than a long goodbye. You know the kind where you get up to put on your shoes, but you haven't really stopped talking, and you're halfway out of the door, but something keeps coming up. 
and then you text as soon as you get in the car because you totally forgot about asking this other thing uh there's no script to these post script conversations and it is not pre-planned it happens when it happens and with the guest's permission i record this portion and share it with sneaky art insiders the wonderful people who support this show both of the last two episodes incidentally have come with postscript sessions in the conversation with david morales he asked me about how i engage with my fans because he's interested in having a better relationship with his audience outside of instagram so i tell him a little bit about what i'm doing and explain my ambitions around the 1000 true fans model in the postscript with sandy hester I ask Sandy to help me figure out how a sneaky art YouTube channel might look. What can I do that would be interesting enough to watch and what can I do that I will be able to keep doing? The key to success is regularity and the key to do something regularly is to be able to do it without taking too much attention away from my other work. So we come up with some great solutions. If you've been curious about YouTube for yourself or to just know how YouTubers kind of manage this incredible workflow or if you just want to really listen to more of Sandy, find the link in the show notes. Both of these postscripts are only temporarily available outside the paywall to have access to them forever. to have access to other such conversations from the past and more coming up in the future. sign up to become a sneaky art insider okay now let's get back to elenor we speak about an upcoming book other projects in the future making business decisions around creative work and lots of other interesting things So tell me about this graphic novel project is this the the one that's about to release very soon you've been you'd been working on it since covid <laughs> let's Before go into that COVID. Yes it was so my the author Jonathan Toon pitched it to Penguin Random House in end of 2018 it took most of 2019 to get a contract from them and then we started working on it I started he was doing so he did all of the character designs the story the dialogue and the layouts of the comic this is also my first comic project ever um it was challenging because we were dating and then we broke up he was the the long-term partner uh it was interesting working on that throughout it but I'm also glad cuz we like stayed in touch and made something pretty awesome. It's a 80 page young readers graphic novel called Kay's Car Can Go Anywhere. It was supposed to come out in February but due to supply chain issues it is coming out the first week of April which is very soon at the time we're talking. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, this episode is going to air just I think a week after it releases. Oh, cool. So much to look forward to. So, I did the my part of the process was doing all of the I did the I got like a very rough sketch from him and I had to develop the backgrounds, which is what I wanted to do. So, 
did um, pencil drawings of backgrounds I had to make up, which was interesting challenge because I usually work on location or from references. And then I inked it all and then scanned it, cleaned it and colored it. Um, I colored it all in early 2021 digitally, just also a kind of a drag, not a drag, but it was a, I don't really like working on the computer that much. So it was a lot of computer time. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think you've expressed this uh, in some post or maybe I read it on your Kickstarter also. The, the way that you sort of integrate digital and traditional work. Uh, and I, I completely resonate with that now. Like now that I've started, I've become completely a traditional pen and ink person. And I used to be all about the iPad before this, but now I can't seem to go back to it. I, I just, it feels like a sterilized experience to not not get a sense of how things feel on paper. Like everything feels the same if you use the stylus. Yes. <laughs> Interesting that you started with it and then you don't use it much right now. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was a very, uh, it was a very key part of being able to make art. So uh, all my life I've wanted to be good at drawing, but when I was very young and now I look at my drawings from when I was eight years old and six years old and like, I was ridiculously talented. Like I was so good. Like it was like, I could show you some of my drawings from when I was eight years old that I can't believe that I drew this at eight. Like I had no business doing this, but I had this idea that if you draw only from looking at things, that's cheating. That's not really drawing. This was just something I, I don't know where I picked it up, but this thing just consumed me, this idea that I'm not good at drawing, I'm just good at copying. And that's not the same. And so I don't have any reason to feel good about it. And I wanted to be good at art. And, you know, everybody when they're young and they'd feel like they're not very good, eventually they reach a point where they stop doing it. And when I wanted to do it again, it was incidentally comics. I wanted to draw comics, but I had this, uh, obstacle in my mind that I'm not good at it. And if I'm not good at it, there's no point doing it. Uh, and I was afraid of quote unquote, ruining the page. So I wouldn't draw often enough. And that starts this vicious cycle that you don't draw often enough. So you don't draw well, so you don't draw often. And so you yeah. don't draw well. Like what is uh, good enough? What drawing is like good enough? And how do you measure that? And exactly. why do you have to be good enough? Yeah, exactly. Like so th these are silly obstacles in retrospect. And they were just obstacles that I put in front of myself. They didn't have to be there. Nobody had any such expectations of me. But at that time, the iPad came into the picture for me, digital art in general. And that seemed like a way to get around this thing of quote unquote, ruining the page that there's no page being ruined. I can do whatever I want <laughs> at zero cost. So I could sort of give myself the permission to play games. Like, let's just draw things and see what happens. Let's throw color on it and see what happens. And I can just undo it. So I did a lot of digital art and it helped me go through a lot of drawings and very quickly express a lot of ideas that I wanted to share as comics. So quick comic strips. And it helped me go through the volume that I needed to firstly pick up some skills and secondly, to pick up confidence. And once I had that, I'd reached this level of comfort, but I also reached that uh, 
just that plateau that, you know, this is not feeling like anything. All, no matter what brush I use, no matter what I switch, what pen I switch to, all of them feel the same because it's the same stylus on the same iPad surface. So I need to go back to the real thing in order to know how I should use this digital tool. This was the idea then that in order to use the brush tool properly, I need to know how a real brush works. Otherwise, I'm just doing the same silly thing with the stylus. And I started doing that and I started with the fountain pen and watercolors and I just completely fell in love with it. And <laughs> I started using the, I you know, with the digital art declined and I pretty much have phased it out of my life in lots of ways. But uh, yeah, so comics. I'm interested in the fact that you made this comic. And what really fascinates me here is that when you're an illustrator and you're just making things that you want to make, you're sort of making things that you like you enjoy or people like you might enjoy. So those are the kind of things you have in your head. But when you're making a comic and you know that it's directed to young readers, what does that do? Like, what does that do to how you're thinking about the backgrounds, the foregrounds, the colors, the, the line choices? How did you place young readers and the market of the book in front of you? Hmm. I don't think I thought about it that much, actually. I was just like, this needs to look good. And I'm kind of of the belief that, and I, what I was told in school is the same, is that this idea that kids only like really simple, flat drawings is kind of made up, um, made up by, I don't know who made it up, but at least what I heard is that that's, that's not true. So I just wanted to make something that was beautiful, something that I was proud of. I'm also thinking about the parents who are going to read it with the kids. So obviously it's not just going to be kids that read this. I think it's going to be a lot of ages. Um, and I was hoping that maybe it inspires a young reader to, to draw and to capture the landscapes around them. Because I think the book is really about landscapes just to give you a synopsis, it's about a frog and a tadpole, her tadpole brother. The frog is like a car mechanic engineer and she builds a car that can go anywhere. So they leave their their city and they drive to these all these terrains that the car can't get to. So she rebuilds the car so it can like climb up mountains, go down a river, etc. It's just like a journey story which is really perfect for me, but it was also really, really hard to make this. It was very unfamiliar to me. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a brutal long-term process to work on a comic. Like there are drafts and drafts and redos and entire, like I've made at this point uh, by myself, I've made three or four, graphic novels of different kinds that they're, they're not even printed they're online and some of them are like the small ones are like 20 to 30 pages and the large one is 90 pages and it was months of redrawing like I thought I had everything down and I was ready but then everything changed at least five times over what what was that process for you like since 2018 is a long time yeah well, even just the part I didn't work on at all, which was Jonathan making the story, the characters, 
I saw it from pretty much the beginning when it was just an idea. He made a little animated video for it. I think it was originally supposed to be a music video for this Eleanor Friedberger song that he really likes and ended up pitching it as a book to these editors. So he had to write the whole manuscript out and also do a couple entire penciling the entire 80 page story. Um, but he, I think he really likes this process, even though he, um, how would you say he works really hard at it. He really wants it to be extremely good. He takes a lot of pride in the craft and wants it to be like the best possible book he can make. Um, and then by the time he's done, he's like, Oh, this is, this is all wrong. I could, I'll just do it again. I was like, no, you have to send it. This is why um, working together is challenging sometimes. <laughs> so once I got that, I had to send my, my sketches back to him a few times, then he would correct those. Um, getting that input from someone else is actually really nice even when it's your, your ex-partner. <laughs> Cause a lot of the time as a freelance illustrator, you just, you don't have anyone to, to ask or to get feedback or approval from. You just send it in and hope the client likes it and they may or may not like it or send yeah. they may or may not approve it. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you deal with that though? Like, um, I don't think it's something you can prepare for. Like, I don't think anybody who becomes an artist or illustrator is fully uh, attuned with, you know, just how much you're going to have to listen or ignore or choose to pay attention to other people. How, how do you deal with that? How does it work for you when you do commissions for others? Hmm. Um, I guess I'm at a point now where if it's a, urban sketching kind of commission, like a watercolor painting, I have a good idea of how I want it to look and how I can fix things. But I, I really like just sending, showing my friend, my friends who are in creative fields and whose opinions I value for these things, just showing them and seeing what their take on it is. And just the that's something I do miss about school is that there is a lot of chances for feedback and it was really built in to the curriculum. We had critiques all the time and like you just having someone else look at it, they see things really differently from you and it's very valuable to get another perspective on it. I, I, like, let's talk about your second Kickstarter experience. I think this was also super interesting and it was uh, just a little bit, you know, in very small, subtle ways, different from the first. So you weren't funding a trip, but you were coming back from a trip and you were offering the sights and sounds of this trip that you took to Southeast Asia. So what was the, uh, how did this, uh, how did you come up with the idea that you wanted to do another Kickstarter? <sighs> I felt like it was, I sh I'm taking these trips. It's a big investment in time and money. And the investment goes to improving my drawings and having those breakthroughs like I was talking about. 
seeing the world, learning about different countries and cultures. And that's all an investment in myself as well. But I felt like it wasn't, I, sh- I had to do like these big projects to really make it real and achieve things that I, I wanted to achieve by somehow like marking the time. And since it's all self-directed, there's usually nothing that's really marking achievements. I don't get promotions. Um, so it's something I wanted to do and also to share those experiences with an audience in the form of a, a book of drawings from my travels in Hong Kong and Vietnam and Thailand from that trip. Um, so I did want it to be a lot simpler and have a lower goal because Glow Popper was so much work, so much work to do that, even just to set it up. It's like you have to make a video, you have to figure out what you're doing, you have to type all this stuff and structure rewards and find out how much shipping is. So I want it to be a lot simpler. You had a lot of rewards in the Globehopper uh, Kickstarter. Like I, I was actually quite amazed by how much you were giving and how much you were offering to like for uh, roughly 60 something backers. It was quite incredible. <laughs> yeah, it kind of built on itself, if I recall correctly. Like there's like a basic package. The most simple thing I think was like a PDF, which is nice because scalable rewards and people sometimes just want to contribute, but they don't want to own a thing. Um, I, I feel like I'm that kind of person. Like I don't want to have that many things unless they're very sentimental. Um, so that's a good option to have. And it's easy. But yeah, it was kind of insane. It was, I went all out on that project. <laughs> so com- coming to the second one, did you uh, want to make a book and so you started a Kickstarter or did you decide to do a Kickstarter and then think about what would be a good reward? Uh, I think the book came first. I had been making these little sketchbook scenes using like the Kinko's printing and then binding them myself and selling them on Etsy for like $12 or something that was a, I always in my head I want it to be really simple like I'm just going to make a little zine and put it out there to kind of capture this chunk of my life in drawings and share that with people but it's just so much work to to lay it out like scan everything get the layout right and it's every time I do it I'm always surprised by how hard it is to do. And then the whole thing of not begging, but posting a lot about this thing I'm doing that you can pay me or give me money for. Um, I just want, if people want it, that's great, but I don't want to pressure anyone into getting something that I'm making. And then putting that in people's faces on social media all the time just feels kind of desperate to me. And it doesn't feel good. But yeah, I did want to make a book to, because I went to Southeast Asia for like a month and did a ton of drawings. And I want to show that to people because the sketchbook's just sitting on my shelf, not being very much use to people. Not that things have to be useful to people, 
but I wanted to share it. Yeah, I, I think I think the primary urge is to share. Like, I think that's the primary urge of making art. Like, uh, there's someone put this hypothetical question to me: Would would anyone be an artist on a desert island, like a deserted island? And I wonder, like, like I there's so much self motivation to being an artist, but I feel like a very important part of this is that just that primary urge to share it with someone. And maybe they like it, maybe they don't. But just the idea that you'll make something and then you'll put it out there for people to see, I think that second part of it is also really important. And we don't often think, or we don't like to think that it should be important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, do you need validation from other people to do this? Maybe you don't, but it is really nice. Because we're social social creatures. Yeah, well, you know, I almost feel like when we think of it as validation, we cheapen it a bit already. I Maybe it's that art is a social experience. Like that's the point of it, that it should be, it should be someone making something and showing it to other people. That's the whole, I, like it's a way of looking at the world and it could be, it could be our urban surroundings. It could be the park we sit in. It could also be someone's portrait in, you know, larger than life with oils. But I feel like it's almost a prime primary responsibility of art that it be looked at by other people and uh, like interpreted or liked and also disliked for v- whatever variety of reasons they might have. And validation almost makes it seem like I don't know. Validation just has a negative connotation to it that I don't want to put to this. Yeah. It's not necessarily validating you, but yeah, being seen is very important. I think to everyone on a really basic level. Yeah. And like, yeah, I agree with that. I'm thinking of like cave drawings from 10,000 years ago like, why were they making those? We don't really know. Is it to say, like, I was here. This is what I saw here. Um, or was it just because it's fun? Yeah, I wonder. Yeah, that's it's 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 so it's so interesting to think that there is this one very human thing that we have carried since then that we can sort of connect with a prehistoric person living 10,000, 50,000 years ago, just by, you know, just by sharing this urge with them that they also had this need to depict something they saw for assorted reasons. I I can think of some uh, almost functional reasons. Like like I I think that some uh, of such cave art was actually like like uh, stop signs, like just public signs <laughs> that, hey, this is a place with good food and this is a place where you can hunt or this is a place where you shouldn't stop for the night. It's dangerous. Like, I feel like some of it is that kind of uh, communication. But again, it is, it's what's interesting to me is that it is communication. Like the, the it's not in and of its, like it's not the person doing it within their own world and that's it like the idea that someone else will see it is a key part of the reason to do it and you can have various reasons why you want other people to see it of course yeah yeah thinking about the desert island question i was thinking that i probably would keep a sketchbook just for myself but then it's also like this is also a record of 
what I did for someone else who finds this book. So I do think it's both. I also want to just share this image with you that I really love. Is that the reason we find art in caves is because it's a preserved environment. And I want to imagine that the earth has been completely covered by drawings and writing and signs for people. And the only reason we can't see it is because the elements have worn it away. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the destructibility is another really beautiful aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's gone, but it was, I think it was there. I think it, I think it's, it was there. I, I think it's a beautiful thought to think about how, and this is a uh, link to something that I saw you talk about. Um, I read this interview of yours and you refer to the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, which is something that I also found so beautiful. The idea that time erodes all things and that there is a beauty in objects that have been affected by time and that only the most perfect object is not the most beautiful object. Yes, I really love that as well. I think I incorporate that in my my drawings, like letting imperfections be the beautiful part of it, like really appreciating the the chaos, finding beauty in chaos and this balance of fixing something and having it be broken in a way you could, that couldn't be controlled. So... So how do you contrast uh, your work as an artist and this appreciation of imperfection in art itself, not only in the world, but also in your work? How do you contrast that with, say, you know, artists 300 years ago who were really realistic and a lot of the people we admire who were trying to be so accurate with what they were depicting about the world? How, how do you contrast these two different uh, urges? Um. Well, I'm personally not that interested in people who capture the world super accurately. I, in terms of Western art, I strongly prefer pre-Renaissance art before they, quote, figured out accurate three-point perspective. I think it's a lot more interesting and you can see like how individuals are interpreting the world instead of reproducing it. Uh, My take is that it's kind of a gimmick to just reproduce what's there. And we have cameras to do that. I respect the skill. Um, I'm personally not interested in it. So bringing that um, affection for imperfections in my work, whoa. Um, I feel like I'm embracing that lately with these water-soluble marker techniques. So like drawing something and then erasing it with water, it leaves this ghostly trail and this like bloom of the drawing that becomes part of the painting by adding water to it. You can't really control what it's going to look like. Um, And just like trusting the process that it'll look interesting. Sometimes I do that for areas of the drawing that I do and I don't like as I put water over them and it becomes a texture in the final painting. And I feel like it overall enriches it by having that history there. I would much rather see people's mistakes and like how they um, solve the problems that they 
ended up having. Um, that's kind of my process is just painting intuitively and looking at it and then calibrating what needs to happen, figuring out solutions for each individual set of circumstances that arises. Really love that about watercolor as well, is that the best watercolors are like those things, happy accidents, I think is the term. Yeah. Um, I'm also like you, you mentioned a solving problems that arise, you know, in, in look on the location. And I look at your art and I see this interesting problem solving you do around something that I also creatively try to problem solve around is trees. Like uh, you have a playful way to draw trees. You don't really draw them exactly as they appear, but it's almost like, you know, I, I try to see what, what images like are dominating my reason for drawing trees the way I do. So I, I, because I work in lines, I don't, <laughs> I am just not inclined towards giving the kind of time it needs to really properly depict a tree. Like all of those lines that just the, the thought of drawing them out drains me. So I look for shortcuts around just showing you, Hey, there's a tree here. Now, you know, now we can draw the rest of the scene and you can, we can move on. But I, I like what you do with color. And it reminds me a little bit of how trees are depicted in games or even in low pixel art uh, when you want to you wanna reduce processing time and you, you sort of simplify what a tree looks like. Where does, uh, what are some things in your urban environment that you sort of problem solve around, you know, that you don't tackle head on for how they are? Uh, I really like that you're comparing my work to games and low pixel art because I feel like people do amazing things inside of constraints like that and having constraints actually, I would say it always leads to better results than if you have everything you need. Um, it's just kind of boring. So I'm, I'm really also inspired by animation backgrounds because people don't have like a month to make one thing they're they're going fast and it also has to support the the main action in the story what's taking place so i'm really inspired by the the techniques of certain shows where i feel like they've done a really beautiful job of capturing a scene but it's also simplified so you can it supports the main action rather than taking away from it so i like to find these shortcuts or shorthands of drawing things. Trees are a great example. I'm with you. I do not want to spend all day drawing one single tree. Um, maybe at some point in my life, I would have been more interested in that, but right now I just don't have time. Sorry, trees. But then you also are trying to capture the essence of what you feel when you look at a tree like that. Right now the cherry blossoms are blooming in Seattle. And every year I go with my urban sketcher friend, April, and we paint cherry blossoms. And I'm always trying to figure out how to capture them. Because if you draw what you see, it doesn't, it doesn't look as magical as it feels when you look at it. So every year I'm trying to find out the right way to show what they feel like. And the farther I get away from 
drawing what I see and into drawing what I feel, the better the results are. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the operative part is how you feel about it. And you have to tap into your reaction to those trees. And this can't be faked enthusiasm. So for example, even me avoiding trees is a very honest example of how I see trees when I'm looking at my world. If I was inclined towards really, really, really observing those trees and paying attention, I feel like that would be reflected in my work because I would want to then draw them. And by avoiding them, you sort of give a clue about the things that you pay more attention to and the, the you know the, the rest is window dressing to use another word from <laughs> before uh, in the conversation cool. <laughs> uh, yeah i love that about urban sketching i know you mentioned this in your podcast but having two people look at the same thing and they never draw the same thing the same way i think it's like so beautiful is that we all have our own experiences and um, inspirations and that comes through in the work that we make and the lines that we draw and the shapes that we draw and the trees we draw or we don't draw. And every single person is as unique as a fingerprint. And I just love seeing like people's personalities reflected in their drawings like that. Even like that you don't like to draw trees, but you do like to draw people. And that gives me a clue about like what you're truly interested in and what you love and how you process the world. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's one of the great boons about being in the urban sketching community to me. I think it's empowered me to think that the things that are interesting to me are valid objects to look at and, it's okay to draw the things I'm interested in and to not draw the things I'm not interested in. Uh, so one of the things that was sort of holding me back in my efforts to become good at drawing, quote unquote, was that I felt obliged to draw these things and uh, from how to draw books. Like, you know, they have these detailed drawings of eyes and then you have to do this this uh, the uh, de decompose the human uh, like deconstruct the human body into all of these shapes and all of these components that fit together, and I found all of that so tedious. But for the longest time, I thought it was necessary. This is the only way to learn. And I, if I can't put in the hours to do this, then I don't get to be an artist. So I resigned myself to the idea that I don't get to do this thing. This is not for me because I can't draw a super detailed eye and get that, you know, get that glint in the eye also and get the darkness. The eyelashes. Oh, yeah, just thinking about oh, it is no. so <laughs> draining. <laughs> uh, Sounds boring. Exactly. And urban sketching, sort of the way it came into my life and the way that I found out about communities of people who do draw from observation, the things they do, the shortcuts they, all of them uh, employ in their work, all of that was so liberating to me. And part of the reason for this podcast is being able to share that with people that, you know, things don't have to be done only a certain way. And we need to like sort of give ourselves the, the permission to do things the way that it looks interesting to us. Thinking about that, this aspect of being a freelance illustrator is interesting to me. Like this is something that I enjoy about my work. I love the fact that I'm independent because I'm only truly motivated to do th to do things that I honestly care about. 
and I like being able to filter stuff like that. But of course, it there's plenty of downsides also. Now, what I want to know is, like, do you have, uh, I think we've sort of mentioned it, like this idea of how an illustrator is supposed to operate in the world, you know, the Kickstarter as a way to reach out to people for funding or uh, selling prints and uh, things of your work in order to make the money to keep going on. As a freelance illustrator, how you're going to make money is going to always be a question. Like you're not employed by someone, you don't have a salary. So you have to constantly be thinking about what's going to make money. How does that play into what you do when you do these longer projects that become Kickstarter or that become books that you print or things that you make uh, your own prints out of? Where in this, you know, this chain of thought, where does the aspect of will it sell come to you? Do you try to push it down or do you do you does it always stay at the top? Uh, yeah, it's it fluctuates. Um, <clears throat> like going to Mexico city, I felt like I have to get something out of this like investment in terms of like the paintings I'm making. So if I am going to sit for like two hours somewhere, I kind of want it to be something that someone might be interested in buying. Not to say I'm like forcing myself to, to paint things that I don't enjoy painting. I enjoy like a good postcard view. I also sell postcards. So it's, um, I mean, it's like marketable. I might find, uh, something really beautiful. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of something. If I'm just drawing, say like the gas station across the street, because, oh, so there's a, a building next to my building that's going to be demolished in a couple weeks. And I really want to draw it before it's demolished. I don't think anyone's going to want to buy that necessarily, if only because I say that, but I'm like, maybe someone would if they love this, this restaurant that was next door. But now it's like covered in graffiti and there's trash everywhere. So it's more like the the side of urban sketching that's journalism i think is really important to the whole practice and it informs a lot of of what i do i think that's important to do and i don't want to just have my practice be about what am i going to do is it going to sell is it going to sell today i can't spend 2 hours drawing this crusty old building cuz i won't be rewarded by it but those things like also feed my my soul. They make me, I feel like it's important to do it, just just to do it and to share with people and doing things like capturing the, the old building next door is like a way that I can connect with other people that live around here. Like I might share it with my building neighbors and hopefully like, make them feel something. I don't know. So yeah, it's a, it's a balance. Yeah. Do, do you have to, do you have to sort of uh, like re, you know, bring things back to balance? Do you find yourself leaning too far in one direction or the other? Like, 
I have phases when I have to knock myself back into thinking that, you know, I'm just, I'm actually really supposed to satisfy myself and everything else comes from that. And I find myself in these phases when I'm locked into thinking about only the other person, only the person who might buy it. And it feels like that's like, I, I need to pull myself back from that brink again and again. Yeah, I spend once every week or two weeks just going to a cafe and drawing the cafe, like the inside of the cafe, just to be like, this is just for me. This isn't for anyone else. And even trying not to think like, if I do this, maybe it will get more engagement on Instagram if I use this technique. Like, no, this is, this is just me. But it's a struggle sometimes. You have to snap out of that mindset. Right, right. I had this recently. Uh, I uh, wanted to do a drawing and I now it, this has become a constant preoccupation. Every time I make a drawing, I feel the compulsion to get some cool videos out of it. And that irritates the heck out of me. Like I want to have those cool videos and I want to go super viral and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it, it drains me to do it, like to set it up and to sort of stop my process. Like the moment that I actually put pen to paper, I go into a different place. Like I suddenly lose track of time and all my nervousness and anxiety about being in a public spot, maybe populated by lots of people, all of it just drifts into like it mutes and I'm just in the drawing. And the, the idea of recording it or taking little clips of it, it asks me to pull out from that zone and then go back in and then go back out and then in again. And that feels just so wrong that recently I made this drawing and I just told myself, I'm not going to, sh this drawing will never be seen by anyone else. I don't care if it, and I, I, I'm going to make it good. I'm going to make it really good. And then I'm not going to share it with anyone just to feel like I have control. <laughs> mm -hmm. Control of your own, that need for the validation and dopamine um, rush of the social media and getting the big number on whatever platform. I love that. I might do that too. Like setting the intention to not share it. And like, how did it, how did it come out once you decided that? Well, the drawing came out well. <laughs> now I don't have great uncertainties with my drawing. This is another aspect of my art that I'm sort of confronting now is that I've gotten reasonably good with what I do. Like I work with just two tools, like there's a fountain pen, there's a marker and I know how I'm going to do it. And I know, I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. Maybe something incredible happens, but I can rely on myself to make a good drawing every time. And that has gotten a little boring, maybe. And I'm reaching this idea that I need to, I need to add some chaos to this mix. I need to not know how things are going to turn out and like make more of a roller coaster ride out of this otherwise very serene carousel that I'm on, that I just go round and round and make drawings. That was a beautiful metaphor. I should use it somewhere else. <laughs> Carousel. Yeah, I really relate to that too. I think that is a big reason why I picked up mixed media. Um, it's, And I think 
I mean, I can tell for you, you have like a very strong growth mindset. So if you're not learning things, you're kind of like, what am I doing here? And the uncertainty part of it, I think is what, I think it's kind of like, I want to say it's like gambling, but I think it's making a sketch without being able to know what's going to happen, how it's going to turn out, what's going to happen. And then having it turn out really well is like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah 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 and a part of the 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 great uh thrill of the slot machine is of course not knowing like not having things in your control if you could always get the slot machine to work by doing even if it was super difficult but if there was a way to always get it to work for you it wouldn't be as thrilling like this joy of not knowing this anticipation is part of the thrill of it and Actually, I just I just said this in a previous episode also that like knowing, you know, having control over all of your variables and all of your tools to get something made exactly as you want. Like that's a good thing for a lot of lot of uh, projects like architecture. You want the building to be exactly the way you mm-hmm. wanted it. You don't yes. want to have surprises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even commissions to some extent, like art commissions, you especially when the client has something that they want and they have an idea of what they want, you want to be in as much control of it as you can be. You don't want uh, big things to suddenly change. But as the artist myself, and as when I'm thinking about my, 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 my progress as an artist, and like we just talked about, it's so difficult to measure it. There are no numbers to help us understand that we're doing better. Um, I don't want to be in control always. Like, uh, So this is how I framed it. I said that when you know how everything is going to turn out and everything starts to turn out that way, things only turn out as good as you can imagine. Like that's the best case scenario, that this is what you could imagine and that's how good it became. But as an artist, there's a lot of, like the happy accidents quote, like there's a lot of discovery and we need to leave room for that, those kind of crazy things to happen, which elevated to beyond what we could do, like beyond what beyond what we had imagined for it from before. So some things need to happen that I had no, that I can't control or that I have less ideas about. Yeah, so important. It's like the fun part is seeing what appears on the page in front of you and just like, detaching your, what would it be your left brain? It's like rational and then going more to your intuitive right brain. And just, like I said before, reacting to what's on the paper, solving problems as they happen. Um, and like leaving all of that up to, to chance into the circumstances of, of what you're doing and your intuition and instincts. Um, that's, like incredibly fun. And that's why I love doing this. And lately I've been using a lot of mixed media because there's just so many more combinations of things that can happen, like astronomical numbers of, of things you can combine to make super fun. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about some of these, like what are some mixed media projects or, pieces that you've made and what are some of these fun combinations? My favorite lately, as I said before, is the water soluble markers because of 
being able to erase them, having like these markers. I don't know how they're made, but they have different pigments inside of the ink. So the inks, these multiple pigments like separate onto the paper and mix in ways that I could never do myself on purpose. So that's really fun. And like using different colored lines. Um, I have this little pouch of materials that's kind of like random stuff that I've acquired and things I'm excited about. And I also try to put some, some things that I haven't used before, like the random markers, maybe I haven't used in a long time, like random stuff I bought on trips. That's also a fun way to remember the places you were like this tiny little art supply store in Taichung, Taiwan, where the markers were 10 cents. Love those markers. So that always watercolor because it's simple and easy to clean and light and very familiar to me. Um, I kind of rotate through the line, line makers I like. I kind of got burned out on fountain pens because they all eventually clog on me because I like waterproof ink for those. And I tried so hard to clean them and they just don't work ever again. So sad. I've been using, uh, like, firstly, I'm amazed by how long ink lasts. I just, we just moved. So I had a chance to really look at my ink bottle while I was packing it. And I've had this 60 cc bottle of platinum carbon ink for like over a year. And it's it's still just halfway finished. Like how much art can you get out of 30 cc's of ink is ridiculous. Uh, I, I, I'm bringing it up because it is waterproof ink. And I'm not a super diligent caretaker of my fountain pens, but they don't seem to clog. So in case oh, you're looking that's for... That's what I uh, use too. <laughs> really? It, is it Watch clogging out. for you? I don't know. I could have, I don't know what I've, what I've done. I think if you just don't use them for a long time, they clog up. Maybe, maybe that's it. I definitely use mine every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's like after fighting them for so long, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to use something else that makes me happy to use. My go-to pens for like 10 years have been the, pilot parallel pens in multiple sizes and I modify them sometimes so they have a they're they come as like square tips for calligraphy but you can round the tips so you can get a little bit of a different line too so like calligraphy markers and pens are I love those because you can get like a nice variety of lines just using one pen and having things be kind of thick and chunky is a very pleasing style to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I've been uh, using my bent nib fountain pen off late. Uh, and I really like it because I can get the really thick lines from it and also the super fine lines. And that's that's been fun. I have a couple of parallel pens, but I don't think they're very good. Or maybe they've clogged over time because I've ignored them for so long. But they're not they're not doing anything. And I need like I'm looking at them right now with uh, disapproval. Oh, <laughs> maybe you round the tips and see what you like. But those bent knit pens are, are great for the same reason. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. This is a good idea though to round the tips. It never occurred to me to do that. Maybe I should. Maybe I should try something like that. Cheers. Yeah. Not using them uh, anyway. I, I'm also in this phase where I think I might bring more color back to my work. I have ignored color for the longest time, and I want to do it, but I don't. I feel like I uh, I need something to match the impatience with which I make art. <laughs> I don't want to do something that needs me to. So uh, I I did watercolors for like a couple of years or just a little over a couple of years and starting to get good at it. But I stopped doing it because it didn't it didn't fit in with my mood at a place. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't I didn't want to uh, like uh, this is something I think about and I think maybe it would be interesting to hear your take on it. Is that the tools that you use? they sort of determine how you mentally break down the thing that you're looking at like whether you break it down into chunks of color and then the order in which you will lay down those colors because watercolor goes from light to dark so you have to sort of see the underlying lighter substrate of your of whatever you're looking at in front of you and then interconnect all those pieces and i like doing that with line and i found that it was just such a trial to do that with color. Uh, what what are your thoughts on it using all these kinds of media? Yeah, it definitely informs how you capture it for sure. Um, for me, I guess I think more of in term more than the line maker itself. I go between starting a a sketch in pen and doing like a really precise line drawing or starting it by painting all the shapes in in watercolor and then coming over it with line. So it's kind of like working front to back and then back to front or whole, whole scene and then chopping it up into little bits. And I think the latter, the starting with watercolor is what I'm more excited about recently because um, there's like less control over it. I guess last year I was doing a lot of line drawing. Oh, my computer died. Um, the, the lines, yeah, starting with line, you can really get a lot of accuracy in everything you're seeing and really have a clear sense of what everything is, how it interacts with each other. And then if you start with the paint first, it's, I'm trying to capture like a, a feeling or kind of a feeling of movement in the scene, like your eyes kind of exploding out from one point or like you're being pulled into this corner of the composition. So making it a lot more, it makes it feel more dramatic, but you also, uh, there's a lot less control in it. So then like you are saying, when it works out, it's like big reward but then there's a lot of mediocre, not, I guess, mediocre, but just like nice exercises in capturing places. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, even even mediocre or uh, drawings that I might think of as bad drawings, they're all good exercises at the end of the day. Like it, I, I solved a problem, even if everything doesn't look good. And what I really love about you know, when things are uncertain is that sometimes you're like 70 or 80% into the drawing and it looks like it's not going to be good. (laughs) But then something happens in like the last few minutes and it, 
either it rescues itself or some kind of genius strikes me and without uh, deliberating on it i'm able to rescue it but do you find that happening to you like just the importance of sticking with it till the end is yes that's so important i totally agree just i very rarely give up on a drawing because i feel like i've done this enough that my initial impulse is good like this has worked hundreds of times before um and oftentimes, like having that, despite being doubtful, those are some of my favorite sketches. It's usually for me, it's like 20% in. I feel like, oh God, what have I done here? What was I thinking? But um, I was thinking something. I'm like, I know, I know this. I know myself. Again, with that trust, trust in yourself. Trust that things will work out, but the ugly phase is definitely real, especially I find it's more real in like acrylic and opaque media. I keep picking up gouache and acrylic paint thinking like this will be really good for me. The things people make with this medium are incredible. Um, I watch my friends do it and um, they don't. They enjoy it, but every time I do like four paintings, then I just go back to watercolors. <laughs> it's a lot more discouraging when you work for like two and a half hours on something and the ugly phase never really goes away or you have to fight so hard. Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned this, you know, now that you've gone through so many drawings and so you have to trust your instincts. You have to trust, even when it doesn't look so good, you have to trust that you sat down there for a reason and you don't have to explicitly prove it to yourself. You've just done it enough that you know it was a good reason. Now, let's just have the faith to finish this drawing and something good will come out. Now, I'm thinking about how this how this builds, you know, like when you're, if you're a, if you're a young artist and you don't have these hours and hours and all these hundreds of pages of drawings to give you that, that implicit trust in yourself what's what's a good practice do you think it's a good idea for an artist to start off with just trusting themselves or do you think maybe it's the like it sometimes it feels to me like it's the opposite like you have to maybe start off with the idea that i don't know what's good so i just have to put in the hours to find out so is there is there a flip like at some point you have to like you have to begin without trust and then at some point you acquire trust in yourself. Is that a good way to look at it? Yeah, I think so. Like you're starting at zero. You don't know what to do, what looks good, what works for you, but only by like seeing things through and finishing them, are you really going to get to know, get to understand what that experience is, was, was going to teach you. And I think finishing it, even if it's the drawing is like, you're not happy with it. You don't want to share it with anyone. It's still super important because you've, you saw it through all the way. Yeah. That feels like, it feels like just a mental lesson to imbibe the idea of going all the way through with it, just taking it to its end, even if that end is not very good. 
because that's how you find out those situations where you do take it to the end and it just transforms itself into something beautiful like sometimes sometimes the next day like i have drawings that i'm super disappointed by and then the next day i look at them and i can't figure out why i was disappointed same i was talking to my students about that this week as well yeah it's that seems to be very true across the board just giving yourself kindness and forgiveness and um, not taking it. It's not like a reflection of you as a person if it doesn't turn out beautiful. And it's something that you do really have to to work for, I think, to be happy with. And it's very hard. Yeah, yeah. It's taken me many, 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 many years. Uh, firstly, as a writer to be in a place where I'm sort of kind of sort of happy with my writing. And then as an artist to get over the imposter's syndrome. But it occurs to me then that maybe it's a good idea to not have a very fixed image of the kind of artist you want to be when you're start when you know when you're chase when you're starting to chase this interest it's not a good idea to be very fixed to be fixed in anything to have anything that's you know very firmly nailed down that this is this is how i do things this is me yes definitely agree then you're also not comparing yourself to to someone whose work you like for a reason probably because they've really mastered some aspect of it that's just very unhealthy to compare yourself to people who've been doing things for so much longer and instead just think of it as like a growth mindset of moving towards something um, instead of like making it a zero sum, zero sum game. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about how uh, you are also exploring your creativity in different ways. I read this uh, interview you gave about, using the uh, the Capitol Hill tool library and to make your own furniture and things like that. Tell tell me a little bit about this. How did how did how did this begin? Well that began when I moved to Seattle. Um kind of started fresh with all of our furniture. So the first full apartment I had lived in with just my partner because we had roommates in a kind of super cramped space. So it was an opportunity to really design the space I wanted to be in. And having worked at a nice furniture store like West Elm, I did develop some taste in spaces. But unfortunately, furniture is expensive, especially good quality furniture that you don't throw away in a year, um, which I think is kind of abhorrent. So I found this amazing space in a neighborhood in Seattle called the Tool Library, which really didn't surprise me because there's definitely like strong socialist vibes here. So the Tool Library is a place where people have donated all sorts of things, not just tools, like power tools, but like camping equipment, kitchen stuff, um, repair, things to repair, cars, everything. And there's like an optional membership fee, but it's mostly just volunteer run. Um, so I used that space and a bunch, a lot of scrap wood and a lot of basic wood I got from Home Depot and built like a table, a little dining table that fit in this nook in our apartment and all these, um, plant 
stands because I, I love plants, but I don't want to have them laying on the floor and like a bed frame. So, and like saved a lot of money and also learned a lot and have a lot of things that are special to me because I made them rather than um, just buying them. Cause just buying things feels too easy in some ways for me. <laughs> also very expensive to move across the country. Now I'm in this like micro studio apartment and I can't just buy furniture cause it just wouldn't fit right. So I had to make, I had to really visualize what all these spaces I want. Um, it has to be functional, but it also has to feel good to be in. So I have like a folding desk and some very precisely fit shelves and everything. Um, that was really fun, that phase of my life. I feel like I don't really make, I don't make furniture much anymore. I just don't have space for it. But now I'm excited about mending my own clothing and using that wabi-sabi philosophy of um, having the, like the story of each object tell itself by the repairs that you give it. And it becomes my pants rather than one of 10,000 pants that were made by this company. Yeah, just like that feeling of making everything touched and um, the feeling of an aura of having like the human touch to it. I love all that stuff. Speaking of wabi-sabi, have you also read about the word kintsugi? Oh, is that repairing with gold? Yeah, yeah. So I was just thinking about that when you were talking about clothes, that you could become the kind of person who wears patchwork clothing and it's all gold-tinted patchworks all over your clothes. (laughs) That would be so cool. I feel like seeing the, it's called visible mending, and I feel like seeing those mends is like seeing gold. But the goal is someone's time and um, energy to spend their time doing that. Yeah, I, I'm so fascinated uh, by this. These two principles of kintsugi and wabi-sabi, these two ideas of about approaches to life coming from a place which produces such perfectionist art that has such a dedication to to just simply being very, 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 very good at one thing, not necessarily doing a million things. So we were going to get back to the subject and I'd love to do it. Tell me about the trip to Japan, what motivated it, all the things you saw and all the things you picked up. Okay. Oh my gosh. Japan was super amazing place to go. Um, I would love to go back someday once they, once they want people to come back. Super interesting that this is kind of like a history lesson of the Japanese um, isolationism in some ways. It's like flashback. But I think that's also like really important to seeing the the culture in this century is like it was so isolated. So it wasn't influenced by things. And honestly, I do get stressed out thinking about the homogenization of the world. Um, that's another thing. Obviously, Japan has a lot of Western influence as well as other influences now, but they've, they really, it's really special place. Um, just like the care 
that everything has in it. And I wouldn't even describe it necessarily as perfectionism, except maybe for like the cleanliness thing, very clean. Everyone just, but that's because everyone just takes so much care of everything, like taking care of their belongings, taking care of the, the, like the streets outside. Um, I love that about it. Everything was just so considered from like the, the materials that are used for things to like packaging on candy. Like the textures of things are nice. The colors are nice. It has such a strong like visual, um, visual art culture that goes back centuries that extends till today. And it's very valued there. And I felt like every artist should go to Japan. Um, I'd wanted to go for a while, a long, a long time. And I went because there was a um, Asia Link symposium, which was like a smaller urban sketchers symposium for the Asia continent of Asia, mostly. Um, but I, I went because I think it was a lot cheaper than the urban sketchers symposium. And I, there were some other things that lined up to just that I felt like going to Japan and Taiwan in the fall of 2018. I also have the, the family friend who got me started on Studio Ghibli movies. They moved back to Tokyo. So I spent a couple weeks with them. I drove around um, Niigata Prefecture with this, um, this woman named Yoko. She's my mom's age. So me and her drove around this um, pretty rural prefecture and we looked at all this installation art. It was a, the Niigata, um, no, it's the Echigo Tsumari Triennial, Triennial. So all these artists were invited to come to this prefecture where there isn't a lot going on. A lot of people have left for the cities, not a lot of babies being born, like the whole story of Japan right now. And they've revitalized these, not revitalized, but they've taken up these empty elementary schools and old buildings, like storehouses and fields and placed art in them. And that was really amazing to go travel around, see this pretty remote area and also see amazing art activating these spaces that I never would have gotten to see if it wasn't for this art event like a this abandoned elementary school was so spooky and of course did a lot of painting and solo traveling and bicycling I did a a bike tour on this famous bike route called the Shimanami Kaido which goes through all of these islands in the kind of central Japan area it was so beautiful yeah, that sounds that sounds lovely. I really can't wait for a chance to to not just visit but really spend time there. Uh you know, you you said that every artist should go to Japan and it had me thinking about how there are different places that are helpful or not helpful 
to the process of becoming an artist. Like different cultures and different circumstances in different cities. So I grew up in a city with a lot of chaos and uh, well, India is a lot of chaos in itself. And I grew up in a big city in India and there are a million things happening all the time. Like the amount of stuff that happens to me in a week in Vancouver <laughs> happens to me in an hour in India. Oh my gosh. Like just if I count all the sensory input, like, you know, sounds and smells and sights and colors, etc. So like you can pack in a lot in India and that sort of stuff, it changes your attitude towards art and towards creativity. I find it's really good if you're a writer because you're going to find stories everywhere. There is stuff happening. You just have to take a walk and you see five things that, you know, it that'll just blow your mind that you didn't expect. So there's that. <laughs> and then after that, I moved to the Netherlands for a few years. And I thought that the Netherlands would be amazing like as in terms of art, because of course there are all these great Dutch artists and Van Gogh, who is a personal hero of mine as well. He's Dutch, he was Dutch and these amazing, like the Dutch golden age of painting is fantastic. But I found that living in the Netherlands stifled my creativity in a lot of ways. Like the place was just so sorted. Everything just worked in this clinical sterilized manner that it didn't seem to me like the place that could give rise to artists. It felt like, and I was in a, I was in an engineering university, a technical university. So I was around people who were creative, but in a very particularly Dutch way. <laughs> like I thought that this is like my, uh, like resetting my, uh, my ideas of the place. It made me think that maybe this place is better suited to industrial designers today than to pure artists. It seems like it's, very functional, you know, they want to get, they want to solve problems. They don't just want to make art. And coming to Chicago from the Netherlands, again, completely changed things for me because Chicago is chaos and chaos is excellent for me. Maybe I'm just naturally suited to it. So I just loved becoming a writer again and drawing things again in Chicago. So uh, how, how do you, how do you calibrate these feelings? Like, uh, what is, what is Seattle like for you? What was Virginia like before that? And what is your relation then to other places? Is, is this something you're seeking? What, what do you seek as a creative person when you go to a new place? Mm, I'm definitely on the side of India versus the Netherlands. Although I did, and I like the Netherlands more than I thought when I visited in 2019. But I, I can definitely see what you're saying there. I grew up in a very calm suburban place in Virginia, Northern Virginia. And I was constantly like thirsty for interesting things, like those stories, that stimulation and the chaos. And it just, it really wasn't there. But uh, my first love was actually photography and I would take a like a three pixel digital camera which was a lot at the time and I saw a black and white film camera and just walk around the quote interesting part of town which was more interesting than a lot of towns um, nearby because we actually had a town center rather than a network of strip malls and busy roads 
So there was like a place to at least walk around. Um, one time I got on the roof of a karate studio and that was like the coolest thing that had happened to me. <laughs> so my friends and I were like walking around, you know, doing the kid thing where you're like, there's nothing to do. And just like looking for these little moments that were a little more interesting, a little more beautiful in a place that you, it was like, what's the phrase? Like squeezing blood from a stone. That's what it was like. So I think I've really carried that experience with me throughout my whole life and doing urban sketching is like finding the interesting moments in something that looks very mundane. Um, so Richmond is a really cool city. I really love my time there. There's a lot of, there's a lot more history than my town, which had only really been developed in the last like 70 years when I was there. Um, yeah, Richmond had like old brick buildings and beautiful neighborhoods and the river and like tall buildings. Lots of really haunted stuff there. So going there was like mind expanding. I really loved, ex I did so much exploring on my, my bicycle. Didn't have a car, so um, had to like take the bus or bike everywhere, which was so amazing. Um, I guess when I was growing up, I did live near Washington, D.C., but it was, it was really cool to go there and see all the Smithsonian museums. I didn't get out of that museum national mall area until I was in high school when I went and took a, a class at the Corcoran Institute of Art, which was in the more real city place. And I just, I love those experiences so much. So then moving to New York after Richmond was, I also think everyone should live in New York if they can, especially artists, just for a little while. I know it's not for everybody, but like you were saying, there's experiences and stories and sounds everywhere. Eventually that was a bit much for me but it's such an interesting city, especially as a creative person, because you can get involved in so many industries just because people are just making so much stuff, making things, making events. Um, yeah, I really loved living there. And people who live there are very ambitious and I feel like we get along. Yeah, yeah. I, I, those, are, those are the two things that really matter to me. Like, I think I found that for myself in Chicago, when I, when I was living in Chicago, that I'm around people who want to do things and everybody seems to want to do something different. Like, I just love the fact that there are so many people trying to be stand-up comedians here. And I really love the fact that so many of them are not very good and are probably not going to make it, but here they are trying every night. Like, it's ridiculous how often I had seen a few comedians, like, I, I, I was, uh, so I was a, I was a researcher then, I was in the middle of a PhD program, so I was doing experiments in downtown Chicago in the day, and in the evenings, I was hanging out at comedy clubs and listening to the same group of seven or eight people sort of circulate around the different comedy clubs every other night, 
and try out their jokes and fail and try them out again and change them just a bit. And they're not working, man. Like I can tell this guy he's not going to be a comic, but I just loved that he was going for it. He was shooting his shot and that it, it, it inspired me. Like these bad comedians really inspired me to, yeah, to leave academia and be world. a writer. You could uh, never pay me to do that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I've done it a few times. Like I've gone up on stage and I've had sets of four or five minutes and it's it's super nerve-wracking, but it feels so good at the end. Like it just feels like like such a weight comes off your shoulder once you've done it. But regardless, the the point is that cities uh, and I'm I'm glad to hear your experience in New York as well. That you know you you derive this energy from them, and it's it's good to be near that kind of energy source when you're trying to make it. You know when you're trying to figure out your creativity. So uh, on that subject, what is what is the coming? What does the near future look like for you? It seems to me that you're not like you describe yourself as an illustrator and urban sketcher, but you're almost drifting into the territory of becoming a maker because there are fabrics, there are woods, there are all kinds of crafts and things and all mixed media things that you're involved in. Uh, what does it look like to you? Like the near future, what are the things that you want to do that are exciting? What are some plans you have? Mm. Um, well, I'm going to San Francisco next week. I'm really excited because I love drawing in San Francisco. I think it's super beautiful city. Um, and I haven't been there since before the pandemic. So I'm spending, it's gonna be busy. I'm teaching, teaching and doing some other work stuff there, but also exploring and drawing as is my joy. Um, doing, for the, I think for most of the last five years, well, the last few years, I've been lucky to just receive a lot of inquiries. So I'm kind of just riding that that wave for now until I find or decide something I want to really strive for. I'm happy with just working on what's what's happening. I have some mural projects in the next few months I'm doing. Um, my first permanent mural in Seattle, which is on a residential building, and also my first mural project since before the pandemic. So I'm kind of nervous. It's a pretty big scope, but uh, it feels good to like have a lot going on. My best friend is getting married in Nepal in December because her family, her, she's half Nepali and her family lives there. So I'm hopefully going to go to Nepal in December, which is like, I've never been to that part of the world at all. And it might be like the most remote country I will have visited in terms of how many flight connections it takes to get to Kathmandu. <laughs> I grew up very close to Nepal, so I don't, oh. <laughs> I don't, I don't associate it with remoteness. But it is, it is a very, it is a very interesting place. And I went there when I was super young, so I don't have a lot of images. But I think you'll have a lot of fun there. Cool. I'm very excited. You guys probably share mountains, I assume, with them. I don't have mountains where I grew up. Like I grew up in a very flat city uh, by 
the plains and uh, just uh, there were wetlands outside the city. Uh, no mountains for me. No. It, it's 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 a it's a big part of the world. <laughs> there's there's a lot of there's a lot of changes. Uh, I wish I, like now I am in a place around mountains and I love that. I am not a mountain person. I'm not an alt- high altitude person at all. But I like that there is interesting topography around me. And I've lived in relatively. Actually, this is remarkable. I've lived in flat places. Like Calcutta is a flat place. The Netherlands is famously underwater, and uh, the Midwest is flat. Chicago and Wisconsin are all flat parts of the world. And now I'm in this place with mountains everywhere. And even my running uh, track, my run, my running path outside my house is a lot of up and down, and I'm not used to it. And my legs are complaining, but maybe I'll become stronger now. Stronger for it. The mountains are honestly why I moved to Seattle. I think I was craving that topography difference. Um, When I was traveling, I was most inspired by really hilly places. I think it's also very different from where I grew up, which was very flat and uninspiring. So these things are like so exciting for me when there's just stairs outside that is the sidewalk. That's pretty cool. And then you get views also. I I just got myself a super big A3 size moleskin sketchbook. It almost looks like a prop because it shouldn't be it shouldn't be so big. It almost feels like a gimmick. Uh, I think some people are going to think I'm joking if I walk around with it in public. But <laughs> they're going to think you're really serious. I should I should couple it with like a super large pen as well, like a really oversized pen to go with my oversized sketchbook. That would be so funny. (laughs) Please, I I think yeah. Like, and then I should get super long uh, shoes and then just complete the clown outfit. Uh, Yeah. Oh yes, this is perfect. I think this would this would work perfectly well. But I do have actual plans with the sketchbook, so I'm going to go up on the park outside my house, which is at an elevation. And exactly like you mentioned, I want to take in the topography and I want to record how how things look once you can see, once you can see so much vertically as well, you know, like suddenly so much more, like this is a beautiful aspect of San Francisco as well. Like suddenly you're seeing so much more of the city once you can see it in the vertical dimension. Mm-hmm. Different. And then you can also stand at the bottom and look up and see things at a different angle as well. Hong Kong was like the coolest, maybe most inspiring location I've been in for that reason. Yeah. Uh, Now I have a, a sort of a final question, like a general final theme that I wanted to touch upon. So I love the fact that you are working with so many materials and some of these are materials that you took classes for when you were a student. And so you have some degree of familiarity with, you know, with certain processes around them. So working with wood and working with fabrics, for example. Um, I want to think about what it is for someone to get into them who does not have that familiarity, does not have necessarily, you know, any kind of education on how to use it. How should someone today become more of a maker 
and uh, why what are some good reasons for just a single media artist to to stray well just to respond to that i was going to say i didn't i didn't like take a sewing or a woodworking class in school but then i did we did have like a very basic half semester sculpture class where I was acquainted with um, certain like drills and table saw. How did I learn table saw stuff? Um, it must've, um, okay. That's eluding me. Then my mom was a, is a fiber artist, but we, we don't really do the same kinds of fiber things, but I was like around, needles and thread. So having that basic acquaintance with the material does definitely count for a lot. So you're not starting at zero. Um, so just not being afraid to take something you're very passively familiar with and then just looking into it bit by bit, um, taking things in very small bites, like not trying to learn every single mending technique, but just solving a problem that's in front of you that's like applicable to your life. I find that that's the best way that I learn is if it actually has a purpose in my life rather than just self-directing and forcing myself to learn something. Um, never has worked, never worked for me. Yes, yeah, so like finding solutions to problems that you had, like you need furniture, you need to get this plant off the floor um, and getting a friend that knows the deal to help also is very useful. Indulging in other forms of creativity, do you find that it feeds back to your art or to your primary focus in some way? I think it's more just soul nourishing for me. And it's also all connected like the shapes I'm attracted to definitely show up in like my furniture and my paintings, you know, the, the balance and the contrast of uh, like round shapes versus straight shapes, having those interesting balances in my own like aesthetic. Um, I think maybe you could tell it's the same person or like maybe it would just make sense to you if you saw my my little stools and my shelf because um, it's the same hands, the same brain, the same experiences that made it all. Yeah. I think the, now the, from at least from the pictures that I saw the way that the, the face or the surface of your stool looks, it reminds me of the way that you make trees also. Ooh. It's just a, just a little connect I made from the few things that I looked at. So mm. Uh, like I think that the, was interesting. I'm trying to think like not being a perfect circle, but being kind of yeah. chopped out. Yeah. yeah. And not that. being a perfect circle. And then, you know, the way that you would choose to chop it up. So the way that you would negotiate certain curves, if you don't want to make that perfect curve. So the way that you push away from it and then you add a, an imperfection to it. So the way that a tree has all these different branches with bunches of leaves. And so it forms this, this shape for us. 
and the way that you negotiate that versus the way that you negotiate the task of making a perfectly circular stool surface to sit on. So there, there are these decisions that match across both of those. Wow, I love that. Thank you. Totally agree. Not into perfect circles. Not, it's fine if you're into it, but I'm not, not interested. Like everything, I like seeing the, the hand the aura of things being touched by human hands is just much more beautiful to me. Well, uh, thank you so much, Eleanor. I think this was such a lovely conversation, uh, such a great start to my day. And I hope that the listeners will also gather lots of nice ideas and inspiration from it. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. Well, thank you for this conversation. It was really fun. Went a lot of places. I don't think I've talked about these things all at once before. So it's really rewarding to kind of place the whole journey. And I hope it um, some parts of it inspire people too on their own journeys. This is really fun. 